Welcome to Pop Unlock. I'm Landry Ayers. In the wake of a worldwide pandemic, today we take a look back at another. Dallas Buyers Club, the 2013 historical drama featuring Oscar-winning performances by Jared Leto and Matthew McConaughey, is a raw and intimate portrayal of mortality in the face of bureaucracy and greed. But how did a group of normal people operating out of an office in a motel room stand up to the FDA and save lives? That's what we're getting into today. Joining me today are Brooklyn-based activist and writer for the Center for a Stateless Society, Kelly Wright. Hello. And senior fellow at the Cato Institute, Jeff Singer. Hello. This movie is a, a really great movie. I think we can all agree it is very well made. It is telling a compelling story with really, really great performances. And I think it has a, a pretty universal message that anyone can appreciate and latch on to. But I think a lot of people in libertarian circles really, really found this movie compelling for very specific reasons. This is kind of a leading question. I will say, is this a libertarian movie and why or why not? I certainly think it is. When I saw the movie, when it just came out, it just resonated with me so much. I was emotionally gripped by it. Um, and I'm also a medical doctor. So I was questioning some of the uh, some of the, the science put forth in the movie because, uh, you know, uh, I bear that AZT is still used is used today as part of the combination treatment for HIV, and and I didn't think it was being uh, conveyed clearly to the uh, to the viewer that AZT actually isn't the isn't the bad guy. Um, but that sort of I, I sort of discarded that I didn't because what was more important to me was the message that was resonating with me, which is that you know people have have the right to self-medicate and to seek ways to save their lives. And here you have government bureaucrats basically denying them that right. And and that's that's basically the, the big takeaway that I got from it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's definitely got libertarian themes throughout. I would say that initially it reminded me of Ghostbusters, where the antagonist is the EPA. <laughs> yes, And exactly. in this case, it's just, the, it's the FDA. Um, and I I get a kick out of any kind of movie where like the antagonist in the film is like a government bureaucrat. Um, and so that's, it, it really is kind of similar again to Ghostbusters. It feels kind of just like a story of like a small business trying to comply with regulations to the best that they can. Yeah, except this uh, was more, life and death and <laughs> i mean it was it was more real we knew that it's a, that it's a, it's based on a true story and we we knew these people were fighting for their lives for their survival whereas ghostbusters we knew going into it that it was a fantasy but yeah i agree with you there was Wait, a lot what? of there was a yeah really <laughs> what <laughs> yeah but i agree with you it was uh, similar uh, i enjoyed uh, those aspects of ghostbusters as well i bring it up because i think it's kind of tough to say because I wouldn't call the movie libertarian in its intent, but it has values that resonate with those people. And I think it is it is a, a great example of the values that libertarians hold helping to actually save lives and make the world better in a, a very, very uh, tough and uncertain time in our world that that really, really happened and that more people 
should know about. But it, it's interesting because I think, it, as Jeff was saying, this is based on the story of a very real people. Ron Woodruff was a real person. Uh, several of the other characters, uh, I think Jennifer Garner's character and Jared Leto's character, Rayon, they, they are composite characters. But a lot of the people are based on actual people that lived during this crisis. The Dallas Buyers Club did actually happen. It was, you know, it's very similar to things that were going on in New York and and several other places across the country. But from what you can read about them, and especially in hindsight, a lot of people will tell you that these groups were not motivated by notions of a principle or an abstract notion of individual liberty, of the right of a person with their sort of bodily autonomy and the their personal sense of, of self-control that they are able to do to their body what they want and how to treat this life or death at the time uh, condition in, in the way that they would like. It was much more about that mortality and uh, dealing with the symptoms. I mean, Ron Woodruff even says uh, at one point, you know, once you've got the virus, you're married to it. I'm more concerned about my symptoms and survival. And Ron specifically as a character, the way he's portrayed in the film is much more motivated or at least inspired by profit. And he can make money off of this. Obviously, he's a person who is in need of you know financial um, sort of gains and you know like we all are as people but he has sort of motives to pursue that um but a lot of people that sort of worked in similar circles and wanted to move the drug approval process forward in a much faster rapid uh, manner like the people that uh you know seized control of the FDA act up a lot of these very very prominent activists that did amazing work we're not motivated by these notions of individual liberty. How do you square that? And do you think it is disingenuous to make this film about individual liberty? Or do you think that it is even more important to pull out that theme when looking at this story rather than just making it about life and death? I think a lot of, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder, okay? So... As a libertarian viewing the movie, I immediately picked up on the libertarian themes, and I'm immediately connecting the dots in my head, talking about, here, these people are being denied their right to self-medicate by these government bureaucrats. Uh, I was hearing some things that didn't didn't fit with my libertarian sensibilities, like negative comments about making profit, um, you know, these guys in Rolex watches as if success is a bad thing. And those things, have, I just kind of... I, went into, I denied them, okay? I shut them out of my mind because they came secondary to what was really resonating with me. But I think that the important point that you're alluding to, Landry, is that, uh, you know, everybody's viewing things through their own prism, okay? So as a libertarian, I'm immediately picking up on all these things. But if I, was a, if I wasn't a libertarian, I hadn't uh, read a lot of the philosophy and economics that I've read over my life, I might not have even had a clue about that stuff. I might have just seen it strictly as a story of survival against against these uh, you know uh, self uh, you know uh, uh, callous bureaucrats who are captured by these profit driven 
pharmaceutical company. So I, I could I could see how you could take it the other way. It all depends on where you're coming from. So maybe that's why it was such a successful movie because people who don't have my worldview were also very moved by it. Yeah, I think that I think it's a good point to say that like it's not implicitly or explicitly libertarian, and that there's definitely going to be a subjective interpretation from everyone's kind of vantage point. I would say from my libertarian perspective, the kind of the vilifying of the profit seeking could almost be reconciled. If you think of like regulatory capture, like you just said, the FDA creating barriers to entry for certain pharmaceuticals or certain treatments benefited the incumbent industries. And that's something that libertarians are pretty consistent in criticizing is that symbiotic relationship between the state and these regulatory agencies and kind of the incumbent privileges that they confer. And then following along that, the Dallas Buyers Club is kind of like the free market responding to that, um, like market pressures and market incentives emerging still, even in this kind of captured environment, regulatory captured environment. Um, and also, this is tangentially related, like if you ban or if you don't allow certain things to come to market, you, you're not going to prevent people from taking those substances. You're just going to push them underground. You're going to push them into an area where there isn't medical surveillance. I think that's even a word that they used in the movie. It was like, these people are getting treatment without medical surveillance. Um, and that's a product of the FDA's like dragging its feet. Um, and so that was like my libertarian perspective was like, wow, look at how the government is creating this immense profit potential for the producer of AZT but keeping these people who need life-saving medication just like just like kind of letting them go like you can't really do anything for them yeah and also that connects the dots of course to prohibition in general right when when anything is prohibited whether it's a it's an actual you know antiviral medication or a recreational drug it makes people uh have to resort to to to, to other ways of getting it where there aren't the opportunities to have you know medical input and the kind of things that you need so but w- I'm, I, what i'm saying is we picked up on that kelly you and me and landry but uh but i can understand how a person sitting next to me who hasn't been exposed to any of those kind of concepts or ideas it, they they would have a totally they'd also love the movie but have a totally different take on it Jeff, you brought up early on the inaccuracies with the treatment of AZT as a treatment for HIV and AIDS. And I was kind of curious about that because the film itself sort of wants to and and touts the story, at least from Ron Woodruff's perspective, about it. it's almost a do-your-own-research kind of uh, way of looking at things of like the people who are behind the scenes are trying to, you know, pull the wool over your eyes and, you know, hide the true science from you. Um, when in reality, it was such an early time in the epidemic that there was science out there, but there was still so, so much to learn and technology had not quite caught up to the place that it needed to be. Um, so to use those kinds of you know, methods of of learning and gaining knowledge are, are probably not as as helpful back then as it would be today. But so AZT, as we talked about, was toxic in the high doses that it was administered in when it first was released and and in trials, and it was toxic to the people that took it. But that was mostly because they were scared that 
too low of a dose would be ineffective. But then later on, they learned very, you know, at a certain point that AZT in a smaller dose and in combination with other antiretrovirals in this sort of three drug cocktail was actually one of the best treatments for many, many years for HIV and led to the development of things like uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis and, and all these different things that were revolutionary and helped shift HIV from a death sentence diagnosis to a chronic condition and, and bringing about this sort of rhetoric, rhetorical shift um, to you know discussions of undetectability and things like that. Is there some responsibility that you think media has in representing science uh, accurately? Um, because you could easily come away from this film and think AZT is toxic and it's terrible. When up until a few years ago, it was used by a, a specifically a lot of pregnant women in order to prevent passing HIV along to uh, a child or something like that. So is there a responsibility there? Uh, and, you know, what does this sort of misinterpretation of this data do for the film for you? Yeah, actually, uh, you know, obviously they have a right to publish it and produce any kind of film they want to. Right. But uh, I agree that if they want to be responsible, that was that was very scientifically inaccurate. And it, it could easily come away with the idea that uh, ACT was was this useless toxic drug that they were uh, trying on AIDS patients and not allowing them to use things that work. Uh, but in fact, as you know, AZT it, it has, has been used to recent times in combination uh, treatment for, for a uh, treatment of HIV. Um, and like you said, originally they were having problems with it because they didn't know what dose it was. They were going in uncharted waters. They didn't know what was a safe dose. So most of the, the toxicity was dose related. And also what they discovered over time was that the reason uh, uh, they were getting relapses after a while was because the virus uh, was, was developing a, a sort of a resistance to the ACT. By the way, that I know what this is. This is kind of related to today. There are a lot of scientists who are concerned that overuse of the antivirals that have been recently developed for COVID, molnupiravir and Paxlovid, uh, that if you just indiscriminately prescribe them like crazy, eventually you're going to develop res uh, uh, mutations in the virus s such that the antivirals don't work. So a lot of uh, a lot of clinicians are saying, you know, I think I'm just going to prescribe it only to people who I really have no doubt they're they're very vulnerable they need it uh, but but just to shorten a person's illness by one day who's going to do fine either way I don't think I want to make that drug so ubiquitous to invite a mutation so that, that's the kind of uh, conversation now going on in, among clinicians but um, so it's, it was the same kind of phenomenon happened with AZT um, and that's why what they found it works better in combinations so that uh, as you know, this time the virus has to mutate uh, to to be able to escape three different uh, antiviral drugs instead of just one. So it makes it more more difficult. But yeah, I, I, at the end of the movie, there's this very brief mention that AZT is still an effective drug used today in lower doses. Um, there's a, a very interesting backstory to this, Landry, that you actually alerted me to. And it's a great article written by Peter Staley in uh it's actually taken out of his uh, memoirs called 
Never Silent, came out in Vanity Fair in, in September 2021, where apparently he was largely responsible for saving the movie from basically becoming a junk science propaganda film. Originally, they weren't even going to have that disclaimer at the end about AZT, and they were going to, uh, and one of the uh, script writers actually totally bought into the uh, AIDS denialist movement. Uh, there were a lot of people who thought AIDS was not due to a virus, but it was due to uh, use, you know, using certain drugs that were popular in the, in the gay community uh, at the time. And uh, it was strictly related to behaviors uh, in, in the gay community. In fact, uh, in the early 2000s, the president of South Africa, Becky, for about five years, banned antivirals against the, uh, for HIV in the country. And I don't know how many people died needlessly because of that. Uh, because he didn't buy into the uh, the viral ideology. I think this is a a great way to to pivot to sort of larger discussions that that the film brings up about the response to uh, HIV and AIDS that came about, specifically blaming certain populations for the emergence of the virus. Uh, obviously, it was originally known as uh, GRID, gay-related immune deficiency, uh, and eventually the Centers for Disease Control labeled these four different groups as the sort of most most at risk, uh, homosexuals, uh, heroin addicts, hemophiliacs, and Haitians. Um, and those rhetorical moves not only created such intense stigma but kind of created a, a a desire for people to want to be able to see the uh, people that were living with HIV so that they could distance themselves from it and create this kind of second class uh, such that somebody like William F. Buckley Jr. even floats the idea casually of tattooing people uh, to mark their status to prevent people from infecting others. And he later recants it and says he's just floating it. And then 20 years later brings it up and says that it's not such a bad idea. And he only retracted it because it was sort of out of fashion at the time. And I, I, I'm curious about what you think the libertarian response to something like that is. What do we as libertarians who want to give people the ability to live their lives as they see fit so much as so so much that it doesn't you know impinge on anyone else's right? How do we responsibly and carefully react to rhetoric like that? Um, well, I think the the best way to approach it is to push back with the science. Um, that I think that's that that's the best way. Um, it's interesting that um, the scriptwriters, uh, they themselves were influenced by, uh, obviously by homophobia, because uh, Ron Woodruff, according to Peter Staley in his memoirs, was gay. But in the movie, he's portrayed as a heterosexual who was very promiscuous. And, um, and, and he was being, now the part that's realistic was that he was ostracized by all of his heterosexual friends when they discovered he had AIDS. And there's a, there's a combination of, uh, you know, don't come near me because I'm afraid I'm going to catch what you have. And there's also a, a nice way to also segregate you because of you're gay 
So you could you could almost it almost gives a, a homophobic individual a, a good excuse. You know, it's not like I'm uh, that it's not like I'm homophobic. I just don't want to catch your disease, so stay away from me. So you don't have you could disguise your homophobia that way by just saying you're afraid that you'll catch the person's illness. But I think the best way to push back um, uh, is uh, to present the facts. Um, if you talk just in terms of philosophical principles, my experience over my long lifetime has been that when I try to speak to uh, people uh, on, on, on the basis of philosophical principles, it doesn't resonate as well as when I just give them like real life examples. Unfortunately, <laughs> most people don't, don't think in terms of principles. So if you got to just give them, I think, facts. I do think that it's something that we obviously need to keep in mind. I think we saw it again when COVID happened, where it was used as an opportunity to be like anti-Asian and anti-Asian hate crimes increased after COVID-19 came out. Um, the president called it like Kung, Kung flu um, and a bunch of like really vicious rhetoric like that. And I think we kind of need to just acknowledge that like humans are really good at creating like an us versus them dichotomy um, to kind of maybe like perch up in group status um, and you need an out group to vilify. And I think like HIV and the AIDS epidemic really played into that. And I think like, it's pretty clear that homophobia was a part of the like lackluster response. It was like, Oh, this is just affects gay people and drug drug users. Like those are undesirables. Like we, it's not really a pressing issue. Um, and that definitely informed the government slow walking things. Talking about what the government did or did not do, really, uh, in retrospect, makes me wonder. We talked about the sort of more efficient way that uh, market forces were able to step in and better serve people early on. And, and you mentioned that, Kelly. What are some of the ways that you think and, – and Jeff, obviously, feel free to talk about this as well. Uh, I'm curious about – the ways that market influences can better help serve a, a similar function, but not in the same role as something like the FDA. How do we ensure that people are um, ingesting things in a safe way and that the science is followed through um, and that everyone is protected and living as health healthily as they can while still maintaining the autonomy and liberty that we think is so crucial to the way that they live their lives. What, is, what are some of the ways that you can see that intersection sort of manifesting? Because I think that's a lot of a, a lot of people struggle to see without a middleman standing in there and saying, whoa, I'm going to be the referee here, how that kind of thing is going to function. So try to sort of tease that out for me and explain how that could work. It's interesting. Uh, about a year ago, uh, Michael Cannon and I came out with a white paper at the Cato Institute called Drug Reformation. And where we get into all of that, most people are unaware that there was a world before the FDA. Uh, in fact, the FDA was, as, as we know it now, came in, into its full form in 1938. And until 1951, you didn't need, need a prescription for in order to get uh a drug, unless the, the manufacturer decided they only wanted it sold to people based on prescriptions. Uh, and even as late as uh, the, the 1960s, the FDA often relied on third parties to do the evaluations of the drugs for them. Uh, 
So prior to the FDA, there were independent organizations, the American Medical Association and the Council on Chemistry that would review all drugs. In fact, if, if any pharmaceutical manufacturer wanted to be able to advertise in its journals and therefore get access to physicians, they had to agree to be evaluated and rated by this council, which served the function that the FDA does now. But there were other competing organizations. And when you think about it, once the FDA approves a drug these days, as soon as it's approved for whatever it's approved for, legally, a prescriber can use it for anything they want to. Uh, and that's called off-label use. And about 20% of the time, drugs are used off-label. So even now, 20% of the time, we're not getting permission from the FDA as prescribers to, to use a drug a certain way. And there are independent third-party compendia that basically uh, rate and list uh, what they consider to be appropriate, acceptable off-label uses of drugs based upon the research. And then, and so then we doctors who prescribe or patients who seek medication, they rely on, on, on that literature. People are unaware of that. So um, there is a world without one monopoly government uh, you know, gatekeeper. And here, if something just happened in the news uh, this week as, as we record this, uh, the Canadian version of the FDA, Health Canada, just approved the drug called Albriosa for the treatment of Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. It slows it, its progress down. Um, the U US FDA is, still hasn't decided if there's enough information, if they have enough data on its efficacy to give it the, the green light. But Canadians are gonna start to be able to get it right away. And Americans, of course, can legally go to Canada, buy it and come back across the border in, as long as they're doing it as an individual. So uh, another kind of intermediate step reform other than just getting rid of the FDA and allowing third parties to, to you know, fill the role, is uh, to allow uh, Americans to be able to purchase products approved by the FDA equivalents of you know most countries in Europe, Canada, uh, Japan, South Korea, Israel. You know, you could come up with a list of countries that are have pretty advanced. Uh, uh, pretty advanced in, in, in science. So that way, uh, I could, as a consumer, I, can go, I could say, I know this drug isn't approved by the US FDA, but it's approved by Health Canada, and I want to take it for my ALS. Right now, uh, I can't take it for my ALS, and I don't have time. So it's the same kind of situation as the AIDS patients, you know? Yeah, I just want to echo all of that. I'm definitely not a medical doctor or an expert in drug <laughs> approval, but I am an advocate of like informed consent model access to care. Um, and that's honestly what the Dallas Buyers Club was, was it was like an agorist counter economics informed consent model for drugs to treat HIV and AIDS. And I think that that was like, even, even though like at the end of the movie, like the FDA kind of won and they were legislated out of existence or regulated out of existence, they still, the Dallas Buyers Club still saved lives and they still like, like that in and of itself, like they saved lives. That's like direct action. They took their own action unplanned, right? Like not a central planner, right? Just like diffuse individuals engaging in voluntary interactions. Like this is just stuff that we as a libertarian should eat up. Um, and even though they were regulated out of existence at the end of the film, they still improved a lot of people's lives and they kind of moved the needle in, in favor of like an informed consent, sort of a carve out area for people to have like an informed consent access, understanding like, you know, the risks that are involved. And I think that that's just like an unqualified good thing that resulted. Yeah. 
uh, all of these bioscopes actually pushed the FDA regulatory regime to get more uh, more uh, relaxed, more liberal, uh, drug, to prove drugs, approve drugs more quickly. Of course, at the end of the day, we still have this one monopoly gatekeeper. Uh, another thing that ought to be added about the, one of the reasons the Dallas Buyers Club and other Buyers Clubs saved lives, and again, this wasn't this wasn't made clear in the movie, uh, and again, could lead mislead uh, people. But one of the things that they were handing out at the at the, diet, at the buyers clubs was DDC, and DDC is sort of like a beta version of AZT, and that's why it worked. So um, that that wasn't again that wasn't in any way conveyed to the viewers of the film. So it, it, it and if, if you read the backstory that Peter Staley so uh, eloquently puts forth in, in the Vanity Fair article in September 2021, 20, uh, uh, originally it was going to be basically a, a, an AIDS denialist uh, propaganda film until he he was actually asked to be to play a small role in it and got to look at the script. And then when he looked at the script, he said, oh, my goodness, this is all wrong. And he fortunately had. Uh, I had a very uh, the, the director of the film wanted to do the right thing, so he was able to to uh, you know convince the director to get a rewrite. Jeff, you brought up ALS specifically when talking about uh, Healthcare Canada, um, which reminded me and sort of is in reference to something I said earlier. Uh, I was working on a story. Uh, a couple of years ago now at this point, specifically about the right to try movement sort of gaining traction and the, the amazing sort of work that they've done in uh, allowing people with rare diseases and terminal illnesses to access drugs that have not yet received FDA approval if they have uh, exhausted all of their other treatment options. And it was a, a really, really great bipartisan supported bill that luckily was able to 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 get uh, signed into law um, on a federal level after after several state laws passed that that, that uh, mirrored it, um, and actually ALS activists were the people that I was talking to because there are so few treatments for that condition that they are highly highly motivated in order to find ways that they can they can treat themselves and they specifically cited ACT UP. Uh, similar uh, Peter Staley, one of the members of ACT UP, uh, as an inspiration for the type of sort of direct action that they were trying to emulate. And they tried to basically redo the seize control of the FDA protest, uh, albeit it, it happened on a much smaller scale. Um, but when I asked them if they wanted to comment about uh, their involvement, they were some of the people who basically said the, the aims of the organization at our time were not based uh, on a, uh, a desire for individual liberty, but because um, they basically were, were dealing with uh, uh, life and death. And uh, as such, I, it's it was so interesting. They the last sentence or so of the email they sent to me was that ACT UP has always wanted a better, more responsive government, not less government, which I think gets at, I, I hints at a little bit the sort of anarchist minarchist divide that goes on in libertarianism a little bit, but I think it goes a little bit further than that. Even I think. Uh, 
I think more libertarians would fall on the less government side rather than a more responsive government. So how do you work with people, I think specifically, who are so averse to market responses because of rhetoric about corporations and profit-seeking uh, and that type of thing? And and I always come to this question specifically because, you know, the Citizens United case, sort of the the talking point that corporations are now people and they have the same rights as us. Uh, people cringe at, at that and they think it's, you know, terrible and things like that, specifically on the left generally. Um, but you I mean, we have to understand that corporations are made up of people and people don't generally like to oppose the idea of small businesses um, because that's the exchange, the free exchange and voluntary exchange of goods and services. That's the market at work and it's personable and it's people talking to one another. Like Jeff was saying, like when you give examples of, of people working, most people begin to understand that. So where is the line that we reach where a firm or something becomes big enough that we suddenly start to say, whoa, you're making a profit, but it's exploitative, it's extraction. And what can we do to help people understand that that is a much, much more tenuous delineation than they might think of in their mind? I heard two things there. I heard first the latter about the profit motive and corporations. But before that, you were talking about uh, minimal government versus a good government. And uh, uh, I deal with both of those things as a think tank person. I mean, uh, that, that's part of you just described my everyday life. So particularly in my policy areas that I, I work in at the Cato Institute, uh, for example, you know, Ending drug prohibition, the opioid overdose crisis, uh, you know, drug approval reform, those kind of things. I find that there are a lot of people who don't share my philosophy, but may share some of my, at least my more immediate goals. And I work with them. I have to. In fact, that's a, that's a benefit of working in these areas because you develop relationships with people who you might otherwise never have developed a relationship with because you consider yourselves on different teams. And all of a sudden, you find that hey, you know, you got a lot in common. You're both nice people. You're both motivated for the right reasons. Uh, and the barriers break down. But still, uh, what I what I what I end up doing in those situations is uh, I just focus on the. I, I I oftentimes understand that my allies. May not may only travel a certain part of the way down the road with me, and then they're going to get off the the highway, <laughs> and I'm going to continue. But if they're willing to help me get to the next exit, you know, then I just I, I take what I can get. And on on the second thing, um, you know, I think the emphasis is on it's usually never the quote unquote profit motive. Profit motive is what drives progress. It's important to point out to people, and it's often these same people who I develop relationships with, and then we're friends, and then we're getting into conversations, and this kind, of, and then that kind of thing comes up about, you know, the greedy corporations, and uh, what I try to do is shift their attention to the fact that it's not the profit motive; it's crony capitalism. It's using the levers of government power to advance your particular, you know, goals, and that is wrong. 
that, and that's that's what happens when you have government. That's what makes government so dangerous. I'm not an anarchist, but uh, you have to be keenly aware that when you create, just like you know, wasn't it George Washington who said it's fire? So you're playing with fire, and and so that's what I end up doing. I try to shift the emphasis, and, and lots of this. I, I must say, some of the people I've this is a personal experience. People I've worked with when I shifted to that, and I say, well, you know, it's really not the greed. It's it's the fact that the government is giving them special favors. Sometimes you see lights go off behind their eyes, and they 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 get it. I would I would also this might also be like relevant to the conversation we were just having, but there's a part early on in the movie when Ron is in Mexico and he kind of has that comment about like, you have the new world order down here. And that kind of kicks off the, like the trade, like I'm going to give you a bunch of cash. You're going to give me a bunch of pills. I'm going to go back and start this thing. Um, And that to me was just like the perfect example of kind of like what we think about as libertarians, as like markets providing this like pluralistic and like multiracial diverse. um, Like it is kind of like, maybe it's not true that Ron in real real life was like a homophobe in the film at least you kind of see the like the market aspect of this kind of cool his homophobia down and it brings all of a sudden you have like these different people from like this like homophobic rancher electrician living in a hotel with this like trans woman and they're pulling their resources to get aids medications and it kind of shows how um, like, yeah, markets bring people together, people from different walks of life, they could come together peacefully and pursue mutually advantageous aims together. Um, and that was, that's what I liked. That's an excellent point. And uh, uh, the, the profit, in, in that case, that's another, you know, advantage of the profit motive, right? Because it was the profit motive in this story that got Ron Woodruff to even want to associate with somebody who repelled him initially. And then all of a sudden, that association leads to an understanding and affection. And that's the way markets are all the time, right? I mean, if we had, was it, was it Bastiat who said, when goods cross borders, armies don't? It's just, it's, that's kind of like an international extension of the same principle, right? Which is uh, markets actually are the, the best way to arrive at peace and harmony among individuals. So that's an excellent point. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to keep in touch with us and get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. <laughs>